0: And welcome to the Detention Solidarity Networks podcast. Detention Solidarity Network is an online space to critically engage with the structures and experiences of detention that constitute the carceral state in India. My name is Samia.
1: And I'm Shelza. In this episode, uh, we speak to Dr. Jini Loknita, Professor and Chair of Political Science and International Relations at Drew University, about her latest book, The Truth Machines: Policing, Violence and Scientific Interrogations in India published in 2020. Gini is also the author of Transnational Torture, Law, Violence, and State Power in the United States and India, published in
0: 2011. Her latest book, Truth Machines, theorizes the relationship between state power and legal violence by focusing on the intersections of law, science, and policing through a study of forensic techniques.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Ginny. We are so excited to have you with us for our very first episode. Thank you for
2: having me for this podcast. It's a pleasure to talk about my work and to be in conversation uh, with all of you.
0: We'll just start with a question to understand your motivations for writing this book. We wanted to understand what were the questions that you sought to investigate more broadly through your research. And did any of these come up for you while you were working on your previous book, Transnational Torture, which looked at the legal and political discourses on torture in India and the United States? So I would say
2: that mostly my interest has been to think about the relationship between law, violence and state power in liberal democracies. The reason why I sort of focus on this set of issues is primarily because when I was doing grad school in USC in Los Angeles, it was post 9-11. That was the time that I was beginning to think about my research. And one of the things that constantly struck me was this formulation that torture doesn't occur in democracy. You know, I always remember this quote from a journalist who was speaking, basically saying that being civilized keeps us at the mercy of the beast. And this came up in the context of torture, basically a claim that torture is not allowed in democracies and therefore states feel constrained, even as they were contemplating whether torture could be used in the Mm post 9-11 context. And that really made me think about what is it that is in the nature of torture that actually uh, leads to this kind of a formulation. And I found that one of the ways in which democracies sort of deal with this question of torture was often in terms of a strong rhetoric and some strong pronouncements within the jurisprudence that coexisted with no clarity about how exactly torture was impermissible in a democracy, right? So, for instance, in the context of uh, U.S., torture wasn't ever properly defined or dependent on where exactly the torture was occurring. You could use it by calling it something else like enhanced interrogation techniques. So, I was very interested in thinking about how exactly law itself, law or jurisprudence and the courts which are the interpreters of law, thought of as the most authoritative in terms of figuring out, you know, what are some of the safeguards or protections against torture, how is it that they themselves might enable torture or enable something called excess violence, which is what I talk about in my first book, basically to point to the ways in which there's sort of a, continuum of violence that exists from coercion to torture and i also had sort of a comparative framing with india i sort of grew up in a context where i was very interested in what civil liberty and democratic uh, rights groups uh, were focusing on in india and always knew that torture sort of occurred in an everyday sense and i wanted to again sort of look at how is it that denials of torture existed formally but in the law and practice, torture was allowed. When you look at the law, there are ways in which excess violence gets accommodated. At the same time, I also was very intrigued by the fact that even when you could have strong judgments against torture, right? So you have in the Indian context, you know, D.K. Basu case or the uh, Nilabati Behra case. And, you know, and there's a whole jurisprudence. The Supreme Court routinely had these hearings where they would look at whether these safeguards are being followed or not. And yet at the same time, we do not actually see any decline in either the civil. Severity or frequency of torture in the Indian context. So it's very um, intrigued, therefore, to think about how is it that, you know, the management of violence takes place. So Truth Machines is really an attempt to think about the way uh, that liberal states sort of manage their uh, relationship to violence. And that came about actually very interestingly as I was doing my first work where basically I would often see certain judges mention, all we need to do is get scientific means of investigation. Yet, when you looked at what are the scientific means of investigation that they were thinking about, they tended to be those which are, again, following the logic of asking the bodies to betray themselves. One of my friends once told me that, oh, this retired DGB said that basically narcoanalysis is just meant to replace a physical third degree. And that's the reason it came. And that sort of got me hooked into. Trying to understand the apparatus through which states manage violence.
1: So, in this book, you focus on the use of forensic techniques, specifically on lie detectors, brain fingerprinting, brain electric oscillation signature tests, and narco analysis or truth serums. Why do you focus on these forensic techniques specifically amongst other forensic techniques that are also commonly used? That's a great question.
2: I think I began sort of explaining that a little bit why I turned to these partly because there was an argument made sometime around the early 2000s that these particular techniques, which is lie detectors, brain scans and narcoanalysis, I call them truth machines because of the way in which there was a claim made that they can actually get to the truth, are meant to replace physical torture here, I'll go back to sort of explaining why these techniques become important. But let me also just as an aside, say that this is not to say that there aren't, you know, other forensic techniques, which are equally important to look at. I think we certainly don't have adequate research done on forensic techniques. And the reason why that happens is because it's sort of thought of as happening somewhere in the margins, right? Let's talk about police. Let's talk about state. Let's talk about law and violence or the jurisprudence, the tendency is to say what happens in these sites somewhere are not that important for us in terms of understanding these larger structures. And I really want to push back against that and say that they're actually very central to how policing and state is imagined. I try and do that through a study of these forensic techniques, but I would say that we do need a lot more work on, for instance, DNA, right? Thinking about how forensic techniques become so central to the understanding of what is happening in the hatras case, for instance. The whole thing is dependent on how medical legal evidence is constructed. And what is amazing there is that feminists, for a long time, have looked at things like two-finger tests or medical legal evidence, which we don't don't have for a lot of other forensic techniques. And so, it's also recognition of an entire gap in scholarship. I think NLUD, for instance, has a really good forensic science focus on, let's say, bite mark analysis and things like that. And I think we need much more of that. Okay. So, why these truth machines? I think what was very interesting for me was to recognize that there was a particular time that these truth machines come into being. When you look at the post-independent Indian context, you find that it's mostly post emergency so after 77 that you see the consolidation of the civil liberty and democratic rights movement and there's a focus on human rights violations you see an emphasis on extrajudicial killings or encounters you see a focus on torture on custodial deaths and so on and so forth and this is precisely the time that you also see um, the emergence of certain state institutions. So, NHRC, National Human Rights Commission, you see uh, Supreme Court taking up key cases in the 90s about custodial torture. And coincidentally, when I trace the emergence of these truth machines, I found that it was predominantly around that time, 80s, 90s, that suddenly there's much more talk about using these truth machines as a way to deal with uh, physical third degree. Lie detectors and narcoanalysis in the U.S. context also come up as more humane forms of replacing physical third degree, which had become a national scandal after the Vickersham mm-hmm. Commission report in the early 30s in the U.S. as well. Mm-hmm. So, so again, this is just to point to how not to think of these techniques as, you know, completely disconnected with general modernization plans of not just post-colonial states, but particularly post-colonial states, which had a kind of emphasis of always claiming that they are using science and modernization. And you see that in, you know, in the sphere of agriculture, in the sphere of industrialization generally, but then you also see it in Police institutions and in police reform systems. Now, here I do want to say that, you know, it's not a very intentional thing. In fact, what I try to show is that there are certain ambitious forensic psychologists who want to become more important, want to play a role, want some kind of recognition, and it's their contingent efforts that fit at a particular point within what the state anyway is wanting to do, that results in an attempt to what I call the state forensic architecture. And again, I'm just telling one story of how these techniques fit. I think we need to tell many such stories of the everyday practices of policing and how forensic science comes in. So I think that is another reason why I look at the truth machines. And finally, I'll just say that there's something unique about these truth machines. What is unique about these truth machines when compared to, you know, DNA or when compared to even things like the two finger test and other invasive techniques like that. There is a way in which these techniques force the body to orally say something or betray themselves in a way that is much more like what torture used to historically do. That is why I think the truth machines are very, very specific in what they are trying to do. And that's why I feel that they have a special role in the Indian context.
0: This actually transitions very well to our next question. The main argument that you make in the book is that truth machines were aimed at limiting physical torture and were seen as this paradigm shift, but they actually maintain what you call a confessional setup. And that's also been one of the bases of custodial torture. So can you just say a little bit more about that?
2: So let me just go back and sort of trace how is it that these techniques came into being. I should say that lie detectors have been there since the 1970s. It's only in say late 80s and 90s that you see the emergence of brain scans. And by the 2000s, you actually find that these techniques have become prominent in such a way that they end up being used in almost all the cases, all the sensational cases. If you think about the Arushi Hemraj case and the Mumbai Blast case in 2006, the Nithari case, Telgi and many others, you know. Yet they were not just used in more sensational cases, right? There were thousands and thousands of cases about which we actually don't even know what happened. It's not just that the police claimed that it will replace physical torture. It's not just the forensic psychologists claimed that it would replace physical torture. High court judgments time and time again, and I analyze these, in that period had full faith in these techniques, despite the fact that many of the times it was being used without consent. During that period, there was no need for using consent for these invasive techniques. I mean, analysis is really invasive. So it's really important for us to recognize that the high courts were willing to think of this as just a natural extension of basically investigation. And what was very important was that it was assumed to be safe because it involved medical professionals, doctor or anesthesiologist or forensic psychologist. So the medical setup often became a way of claiming that you had a problem with physical dodger. Look, we are giving you a medical setup. What's the problem with that? And, you know, I always remember this particular interview from Abdul Bahid Sheikh where he says, I went there and in Bombay and when I saw this woman in a lab coat, I said, doctor, I'm innocent and I hope this test will show you. And she doesn't say anything and that's when he realizes that there's something wrong. I always go back to that initial belief by somebody who's an accused that this test will actually prove their innocence. So I think both the symbolic And the interpretive framing of these techniques was extremely important during that time. Of course, we know that it was not meant to replace physical torture. We have narratives from people who underwent these techniques, particularly like Arun Ferreira and abdul Sheikh and others, who sort of pointed to the ways in which narcoanalysis just accompanied physical torture. The depositions that I uh, draw from point to the way in which pliers would be used alongside sort of NACO, right, and so on and so forth. So we know that it didn't replace physical torture as it would not have, but it framed it that way. But more than that, it became a way through which uh, you could ask for confessions or information. In fact, a forensic science director once told me, when they can't do physical torture, they just bring them here for narco. So there is a way in which it played that same role of trying to get confessions through another means. That's something that is even more worrying. Partly because what it doesn't do is help replace the way we think about investigations and change the paradigm through which information is forced from the bodies. And they do it again and again and again sometimes. But finally, what you get is just a report, which doesn't mention that, but will present a kind of a coherent story. So that is the reason why I think that it reinforced a confessional paradigm. Even if these particular techniques may or may not continue in exactly the same form, there's always a desire to come up more with the kind of techniques which can detect lies as opposed to trying to branch off to other techniques.
1: So... Just continuing on from there, why have forensic psychologists become a separate set of experts in India? And are there factors other than not being able to rely on the police's investigative processes that produced this specialized set of professionals?
2: One sort of thinking about the role that science and experts play. So going back to the Hathras case... We find that whether a doctor did a proper postmortem or created a medical legal document makes such a difference in the way a case is decided. Although Rinda Grover, who did an analysis of the medical legal documents, pointed out that, It's not the job of the doctors to really proclaim whether a crime has been committed or not, a rape has been committed or not. That is something for the courts to figure out. Because that's a legal matter. What experts are meant to do is to provide the evidence based on certain criteria. So, one of the biggest things that is striking about narcoanalysis, brain scans, and lie detectors is that the evidence, the scientific reliability and validity of these techniques is highly suspect. Meaning that everybody thinks it's unreliable and invalid. And yet somehow, and I say that in the context of the U.S. also, there's a tendency to go back to these techniques. Why is it that one of the most visible Senate hearings for Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh had a whole thing on the polygraph of the woman who was accusing him. So I think the reason why we should look at this particular set of techniques for a second to go back to that, Mm -hmm. to say that it also plays a popular role and the popular role is different from the legal role. Let's take the Arushi case, right? The Arushi Hemraj case, where Arushi uh, was a young girl who uh, was found murdered and Hemraj was their domestic help. He was found murdered as well. Initially, the trial court convicts the parents. And you can talk about all the problems with the judgment. It is sort of very, very revealing about the nature of the investigative process in India. There were all kinds of issues with that. What is fascinating for me is the way in which there was a campaign against that judgment. And the campaign in the form of books and two films, the film Talwar and Rahesya and all, and a podcast, each of them tended to somehow or the other come back to the narco results of Himraj's friends. Basically saying, yeah, yeah, it's not legally admissible because the Supreme Court by then had decided that by 2010 that these will not be legally admissible except indirectly under the exception under Section 27. But it played a role enough to sort of bring back an attention on the importance of these techniques. And I think that's really, really important. A lot of lawyers often tell me, okay, but it's not legally admissible. So let's not make it that big of a deal anymore. And my constant attempt is to say, no, actually it plays a larger role, a popular construction of science, which actually has a lot of impact suddenly people started saying, yeah, yeah, why don't we look at narcos of the AIDS? So basically Himraj's friends and Arushi's parents went to court saying that that should be actually introduced as evidence. Also, the forensic psychologists who were involved in the case said that, oh, we always said that Arushi's parents' narco never showed any deception. So there is a way in which the popular construction of these techniques are important. To go back to the Hathras case, the document said, let's do narco of the victim's family and the police and the uh, accused. That's a popular, it's, it's basically an invitation to disbelieve the victim, right? Basically, just focus on those three or four police officials rather than thinking about the culture of policing, So that's just to emphasize the point about the popular construction, because sometimes that gets left out of our conversation, particularly of the law. I think as scholars, and I'm not a lawyer, but a scholar of law who's interested in thinking about the law has to sort of think about law outside how it functions in society and politics and culture and popular culture as well. Then to just come back to your question about why did the forensic psychologists become so important? Well, if you don't mind, I'll just read the quote from what one of the prominent forensic psychologists said. Torture is an external stimulus these techniques are internal ones and invite an internal journey. They force you to review your past in a different way, not confess, but ask them to think about themselves and come back. It's a moment of catharsis in the legal system. Unlike the police custody, where there's fear of encounter or custodial deaths or torture, here there is empathy. There are no doubts about the methods that the system can reach truth regardless of the consequences. Now... You know, there is a way in which forensic psychologists have been talked about a lot in the media. I think Malini had come up very prominently, partly because Arun Ferreira and, you know, Abdul Vahic and many others have pointed to the ways in which Malini may have been involved. And so there became this understanding that she represents what forensic psychologists are. For me, what was very interesting is that all the other forensic psychologists said that, no, no, we criticize her. Because of the way in which she leaked, she may have leaked videos or she may have not really used the techniques the way they were meant to be used. So one of the things that I'm very interested in is that what is it that the forensic psychologists themselves thought they were doing? What they wanted to think of themselves is basically that they were separate from the police. They would say we prefer when they come from judicial custody and not police custody. Because if the person dies, then they are liable, they are responsible. And they claim that you cannot do narcoanalysis, which is invasive, or use lie detectors on somebody who is completely physically or mentally scarred. By their own definition, that person cannot be subjected to the techniques. So in in some ways, they sort of thought of themselves as almost like what I call a cyborg. The machine sort of merging with the human In a way, to point to the fact that basically they're not being subjective. And I think the only reason why I think that is extremely important is because the discursive framing of how an expert is defined is very important when we are trying to understand these practices of the state or practices of policing. I go ahead and of course recognize that ultimately all they are trying to do is to get information or confessions and therefore they become interrogators in this context. But the interrogators are different. They appear different in some contexts when they are in a medical setup or in a forensic science lab. And here I should say that one of the reasons they tend to become more prominent also is because it's sort of one of those easy technical solutions. They would say it's very hard to ensure a lot of resources for forensic science labs. We know that there are very few forensic science labs and very few resources, very few investigative practices that allow for proper collection of evidence. There's this scene in Talwar where everybody from the junior most police to the higher most theatrically turns to each other. Did you tell the forensic? Did you tell the forensic? And nobody did. And so the forensic evidence doesn't get collected. The reason why I say that is that absurdity captures some of what is there. And forensic psychologists would tell me by the time you get there, the scenes are contaminated. And so what can they do? They can catch hold of humans, however connected. Or not and that becomes an easier way, and yet it can be through the use of expertise. So, I do want to point to some of the structural contingencies that actually have also led to this. So, then they came up with this idea of Gujarat Forensic Science University, which will have these courses, they'll link up with NimHans. I mean, think about it. these are top research and medical science institutes that get connected. And they had plans of creating mobile units where you would have forensic psychologists. And it's just that there was so much criticism and Selvi takes away that enthusiasm a lot. But I am, you know, stunned to hear that the Delhi High Court asked Delhi government, why isn't there a narco facility in Delhi? And Mm -hmm. the Amartya Party government has just promised the High Court that there'll be a narco facility by November and you feel like really that is the priority of how criminal Mm. investigations need to be done. So, so I think those are some of the reasons why the, this particular set of experts became so central because they could mm. be framed as separate from the police. They could merge with the machine. They could be innovative and yet the kind of confessional paradigm that is used. And even if the evidence is not finally used, there are ways through which they play a role during the investigative
0: process. I think generally in the public, there is a common conception that the police have to use some violence, right? And that the police will only use violence to a certain extent. And then any other violence that is being used, it's illegal violence. So it's some bad apples who are doing this violence. And so they will be reprimanded. And it's not seen so much as a part of the state and how it's being accommodated, uh, as you put it. So can you talk about it in that context? Why would you not think about it as like a exception to, you know, or like a breaking of rules or breaking of laws, but actually very central to the way the state functions? So I think that two uh,
2: parts of uh, the question, uh, and maybe I'll respond to that in two different ways. So one is sort of this lack of clarity about where the limits of the violence are. What are the standard operating procedures? about how much violence can you use, when can you do a lati charge, when can you mm. storm into people's houses, you know, if we just take the anti-CA protests and the way in which the police responded, going into libraries, going into homes, going into mm. hostels and so on, this constant thing of Lati charge and use of some ways of stopping the protesters. And can they be shot and so on and so forth. So I think what we are recognizing more and more is what ends up being very everyday operating guidelines are both determined by which political regime there is. So I don't want to suggest that it doesn't matter which political regime there is because particularly when we think about the police, although in India, but also otherwise, uh, a lot of the times who is in power makes a difference in terms of how the police are going to react. But the the part that I'm interested in uh, also, which sometimes gets left out, is that there's almost an intentional lack of clarity, in these operating procedures. So I think we do need more and more understanding of the ways in which who gets targeted, which regime enables it, right? But also how these practices are already existing in in their lack of clarity and that then enable these forms of violence. So I think there is a way in which We have to recognize what is assumed to be their role. And where is it that it suddenly becomes the basis of escalating forms of Violence. It's only mm. through the study of these everyday encounters or interactions can we look at that. So that's one. Mm. The other is something that I talk about in the context of interrogations and investigations. And that is that the police are actually recognizing that third degree or torture is a problem. And sometimes they uh, justify it as what I call more external reasons or more ideological reasons, which many scholars have talked about. So either an idea of justice or an idea of order or an idea of public safety or welfare. But I think sometimes it's just coming out of these, what, what I call the pragmatic logic of third degree. Basically that they'll say you only have them for 24 hours custody or saying that there's distrust of the police. Or the one that for me was most striking was this idea that recovery of information is actually allowed within the law. And that becomes the way through which state police show themselves as Competing with each other. And I, I find that really, really fascinating, right? Here's a phenomenon where the low convictions, or that they can't show very high convictions in many criminal cases, results in their showing what they get through an exception within the law and claim that as a way of success. And it's there in the National Crimes Research Bureau reports and we don't pay as much attention. It almost never, it it gets mentioned here and there. All lawyers know about it, but it doesn't get mentioned as one of the prominent reasons why actually there's an incentive for Mm. the police to go ahead and use torture despite the (laughs) confessions not being formally admissible. So, so I think you have to look at the internal logics of why the police themselves do third degree. Now, which is not to say that you accept their narrative. Torture is illegal and unacceptable in a liberal democracy. That's a definitional thing. So it's not about accepting their narrative, but to understand that there's an internal logic that we must pay attention to. If we are really interested in figuring out how is it that torture needs to be dissuaded within the police system. Because a lot of the times we think about torture as something which is just an exertion of power. And it is in many instances. There's no denying that. It is used as a form of discrimination. Sometimes it's a combination of all. But I do want to sort of point to what are some of the internal reasons that have also enabled torture or third degree in the Indian context. And I think that's important to recognize.
1: So... Just in the context of thinking about the role of knowledge in policing and uh, when you also say that, quote, the police need to create a scaffold of rule of law, end quote. So it made us think about how the project of education within a liberal democracy goes about and how our definitions of who a criminal is, who is a deviant, how the police should behave with the women or a particular class of people. How does that knowledge or that knowledge production then inform policing? For example, how do categories of gender, class and caste inform policing? I think that's a a really crucial question and which
2: we are just beginning to think about in the contemporary policing context. So when you look at surveys of police reinforcing large-scale biases in society, which in a professional institution where you have the ability to use force, they're legitimately allowed to use force, obviously has life and death consequences for certain sections in society. So I think you cannot think about policing without thinking about what are societal hierarchies that already exist. I think what we have to look at more closely is linking these conversations across different sites. So we have reports focusing on Caste violence, reports focusing and scholarship focusing on sexual violence. We have cases of torture, extrajudicial killings in different conflict, so-called conflict regions. And I think what we need to do is come up with a way to think about policing in all these different sites with an explicit understanding of how class, gender, sexuality and your immigrant status and religion plays a role. There's a section in one of the chapters where I talk about Abdul Wahid Sheikh and the depositions of those who are Actually, all of them other than Abdullabai Sheikh are still convicted and are in jail. And one of the things that struck me as I read through the techniques that were used, some of them are, of course, uh, brutal physical torture, right? Including electric shock and things like that. But the, there are others where basically nakedness, humiliation and rape threats of family members is central to the way in which they are tortured. You can think about parallels to the Abu Ghraib pictures and and in Guantanamo what happened, but also there are parallels to the way in which uh, stripping and parading is something that is often used with Dalit women to sort of instill fear in communities. So I think the techniques themselves sometimes tell you the framing through which policing is done where women's bodies become the way through which often communities are targeted. But here you have Muslim men. Again, the idea is to humiliate them to what I think about as criminalization, but it's also criminal racialization of a, a particular kind and feminization which is being used in this particular context, to remind them of that otherness, to always define them as outsiders and whose religion then becomes the way of targeting in a particular way. There, my attempt is to sort of point to the way in which policing is experienced very differently, right, depending on who you are. And so the intensity or the specificity of the methods often indicate how the policing is being done.
1: That's very interesting. Thank you for that. Especially the point you make about the feminization and the criminal racialization of policing. Definitely something for us to think about and very powerfully brought out in some of the jail notebooks and prison notebooks we see and something that actually doesn't become part of either legal testimonies or the popular understanding of what happens in prison. But we know these through words of prisoners and their experiences and how you theorize it as well so For our final question, we want you to just sort of touch upon the increasing reliance on science and technology in the criminal justice system. So, for instance, the use of biometric systems. So, this seems to suggest that practices that are mediated through these systems are more objective and effective. How do you view this general shift and what do you think it says about the relationship between state law and violence?
2: That's a really, I think, important question and something that we'll constantly be engaging with. I've often been thinking about, OK, so in some of my work, I'm critical of the way in which science gets portrayed. And of course, science has had its own critics. But then there are critics who just will challenge everything which is scientific. I always think that the, the moment of the pandemic is asking us to look at the way in which medical expertise right now is being challenged in a very basic way in the U.S. So it has really made me conscious of the ways in which critique has to be very, very specific. So, so I think we, we sort of have to have an understanding of the way in which science and technology is always also seen as this moment of innovation. And that has always been its attraction and always comes in a way which almost forecloses critique because it always comes as a paradigm shifting thing. And people are so taken by it that you tend to not question it or you're seen as not looking ahead. So the best way to sort of think about particularly technology in the criminal justice system Mm -hmm. is that you look at the origins, for instance. You think about fingerprinting in the colonial context coming out of an inability to distinguish between natives and in the U.S. context because they couldn't distinguish between Chinese immigrants who were trying to enter back into the country. So they wanted fingerprints Uh, and then lie detectors were used because women couldn't be believed or blacks couldn't be believed and therefore. So you have to sort of keep that in mind. What is it that initiated a particular technology? And what is the use that it's going to have? So rather than saying that every possible technological innovation is problematic, we always have to come up with these criteria. And the issue, of course, is that a lot of the times what happens is that the origins point to the discriminatory nature of some of these technological usages. So I would ask us to therefore not be averse to innovation, but obviously thinking about particularly in the criminal justice system, where it's often meant to bring in science and technology without looking at the implications for privacy or the violation of rights. And the other thing is the idea of the invincibility. For instance, DNA. There was just some report a couple of days back about DNA tests being very useful in rape cases. And you have to always look at, okay, what is it that makes a particular thing reliable or valid or not? It shouldn't just be uncritical embrace of technology. Ultimately, I think you have to think about the ways in which technology is enabling something rather than taking away some of the basic rights. Any method that brings back the emphasis on forcing a body to portray itself is for me by definition suspect, because it immediately takes away from all the other kinds of ways in which technological advances could have been encouraged Mm -hmm. and which were not by making this a priority uh, in building a kind of a state forensic architecture.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting how you put that because it is ultimately what is the way in which you're choosing to use this technology. If you're not really changing the paradigm or you're finding new ways rather than questioning it and seeing the ways in which it's accommodating violence that definitely is suspect and it really does make you think how if you wanted to use it to a different aim how would that show up yeah so I think that brings questions and answers to a close thank you so much for uh, having this conversation with us we learned so much thank you
1: thank you I really
0: the conversation
1: Thank you everyone for listening to Detention Solidarity Network's podcast. We'll be back with the next episode soon. Meanwhile, you can check out our work on our website www.detentionsolidarity.net and Twitter page at deathsolnet.